0: The reading today comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Thank you. Please be seated. I think that one of the best movies of all time in the 90s is that of Forrest Gump. And it is perhaps one of the most gripping and emotional movies uh, that still uh, has scenes that resonates with me strongly today. And one of the most powerful scenes, or the, one of the most gripping scenes for me, is uh, that where uh, Forrest Gump, he's about seven years old, he notices that his best friend, Jenny, is not at school. And so he's concerned, and he looks for her into the field after school's over. And he says, Jenny, where were you? I've been looking for you. How come you didn't show up today? And you see Jenny is, is perplexed, she's worried. And, then she, and you hear in the background her father yelling out, screaming, clearly being angry, Jenny, where are you? Get over here. And then you see him looking for her out in the fields. You see a bottle of liquor or alcohol in one hand, and you clearly see that he's not himself. You clearly see he's angry, and you get a sense that Jenny's well-being is in danger. And Jenny runs away says, Forrest, run with me. Hide with me, please. She grabs Forrest's arms and uh, they run into somewhere in the cornfield because there's nowhere else to go. Uh, They get on her knees because that's the only place to hide there. And she gets on her knees and she prays, Dear God, please make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away from here. Dear God, please make me a bird so I can fly far far, far away from here. And that's gripping to me because it is the prayer and cry of a maybe a six-year-old girl who's got nowhere to go. She's uncertain how things will play out. Her well-being is in jeopardy. She doesn't know how, how things will go. She is afraid. She is terrified. Her well-being is in jeopardy. And one of my, um, somebody in my community group one time told me, that in essence, most of our prayers could be summarized into one of two words. Uh, One is thanks, and another is help. I mean, if you want to include confession in that, maybe, uh, I'm sure we say sorry a lot too. But thanks and help, that really stuck with me. It's simple, because at the heart of our prayers, we have this internal cry, help. And that's the cry of a six-year-old girl saying, help me dear God, make me a bird. Maybe our prayers today uh, do not include that of wanting to be transformed into a little bird to fly far, far away. But we resonate at the essence, the deep part of that prayer that says, God, help. I don't know where things are going. I don't know where I am. Uh, Perhaps we're here today and uh, we feel that like our our life has been derailed. Our plans have just gone off course. Uh, You know, we were supposed to be Uh, married by now. We're supposed to have family and kids. We're supposed to uh, go out on the date or find the significant other, uh, progress on the next step in our relationships. But we can't get that second date. We can't get that second kid. We we, we, uh, stumble with our jobs. I mean, we turn in our resumes, interview after interview. We can't get that second interview. Uh, Perhaps some of us here are, are wondering, where is God in the midst of our church where is this church going what does the church future look like perhaps you're here today wondering am i gonna make it uh, we've taken on too much we've uh, we're overwhelmed with work we're overwhelmed with school we're overwhelmed with our personal lives we're overwhelmed with just the state of our hearts we're just we're stretched we're just doing too much perhaps we said yes there's so many different things and now we feel like all the things are falling apart, we feel like we're plate spinning, and uh, you know something drops here, something drops there. If you're anything like me, you, know, you feel like you're plate spinning, and you just can't keep things together, and things are falling apart, and you're wondering, God, help. So today, I want to ask the question, two questions, why do we need help? And second, where do we find it? So why do we need help And the second question is, where do we find help? So first question, why do we need help? The setting is the Passover. The author, Luke, the historian, wants to make it clear. He points it out that it's a a Passover. It's an important detail. And you have the characters of the story. It starts off in this chapter, in chapter 12, with King Herod. Now this is uh, not King. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. It's not to confuse you, but uh, Herod is like a family name, and so, as a leader of the people, and Herod is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the grandfather who tried to kill Jesus when he was a little kid. He tried to wipe out all the he tried to wipe out the Messiah because he heard there was a threat of another king. So he orders and mandates that the, all, all the boys under age of two get killed. It's not him. That, that was his grandfather. Is not his uncle, uh, King um, Antipas. Antipas was the uncle who uh, beheaded John the Baptist, and he put Jesus on trial. This is the next Herod, yeah, the, the successor, King Agrippa I. Yeah, he doesn't really go by that name elsewhere, but Luke really wants to point out that this is a Herod. This is a continuation of the oppression of God's people. And what you have here, a, a King Herod, he beheads James. That's how this chapter starts. Our chapter begins with James, the son of Zebedee, a uh, son of thunder, one of the two brothers. If you remember James and John, they're always hanging out with Jesus. Those two and Peter comprised of the three amigos. Like you had the Transfiguration, or you had the Gethsemane, where uh, all the other disciples were elsewhere, but Jesus only took three. It was Peter, James, and John. And James, one of the three amigos, one of the twins, is beheaded. And Herod, is a politician, he loves getting the reviews. He's he's looking for good political reviews, and whatever it takes to get those ratings up, he'll do. And so he saw that the Jews were very pleased with beheading James. And so what does he do next? He's like, I'm going to keep this going, and I'm going to hunt down Peter, and he does. Peter, Peter is the one that Jesus said, uh, through your proclamation that I am the Christ, I will build this church. Peter is the one who was the champion of the faith, the successor to, to keep the ball rolling, to, to champion the champion, the big kahuna, the behemoth, and he, of all people, is caught up. He's captured. So you got Herod, who's oppressing the people of God. You have James, who has been caught and beheaded. And another leader, Peter, our main dude, is captured, and he's in chains. Now, the Bible tells us that he's guarded by sentries because Herod, if you read in the book of Acts, you saw that Peter was rescued elsewhere, that the chains fell off, so he's not going to take any chances. And he's heard of weird things happening, so he's going to set down soldiers to guard him, uh, four sets of four people, four sets of four guards, sentries included, uh, so you would have Peter locked in chains, one arm was chained to another soldier on his right, and the other soldier was chained to another soldier on his left. And so he was chained up, and you had another soldier in the front and another soldier in the back, guarding the prison. And you had four sets of four soldiers guarding him at all times, taking short three-hour shifts, making sure no one was going to doze off, we weren't going to take any chances, we're going to be fresh, we're going to be ready to guard because Peter is not going to escape. And this is the state. Of where the church finds itself. They find, they're going, our leaders are taken. Who's next? What's going to happen with us? What's next for us? Where are we to go? What is the state of our church going to be? And we find that the only place they can find themselves is on their knees. They're praying. The Bible tells us they're praying earnestly. They're praying earnestly. God, God, Help. Now, I wrote down, if you guys um, have ever done devotions and, and like going, what does this passage mean? Or, okay, that's good, that's factual information, uh, but I don't really know how it applies to me. I want to give you a, a little tip that I learned from uh, a program that some of us are going through called Wellspring uh, to kind of help you uh, bring the scriptures applying to, how, to real people real flesh and blood it's not abstract not academic okay let me give you a little hint or a tip on how you can maybe either do your devotions uh, this is certainly how I prepare uh, for my sermons uh, so that God can speak to me I asked what Wellspring asked us is what is the state of our hearts what is the state of the heart of the church okay so the heart isn't just how am I feeling it, the heart in the Bible comprise of like uh, if you think of four chambers of the heart, the heart is not just of the mind, but when the Bible talks about love the Lord God with your heart, or, your heart, or my heart, I love God with my heart, it's talking not just the feelings, but what I'm thinking, what I'm, what I'm feeling, my emotions. Also, our volitional aspect, what I'm desiring, and what I'm choosing. It's, 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 our hearts are complex. So when, when people say hearts, it's not just meaning emotions. It's comprised of all those things. So I ask myself, what is the church thinking what is it feeling what is it desiring what is it choosing and so uh, i wrote some down and i want to share some of these with you what is the church thinking our leaders are falling one by one people are after us our good friend got beheaded and another friend of ours is captured and almost certainly shares the same fate we're being hunted one by one we are in danger I'm not sure what's going to happen to the church. I'm wondering where God is in all this. We lack direction, not knowing what to do. Who's next? Who's going to step up to lead? If we're doing God's will, how come he's not protecting us? How come things are falling apart? Why aren't things better? What are we doing here? Can we go on? What's next? Feeling hopeless, unsettled, uncertain, unstable, helpless in disarray desperate grim troubled sad mourning scared anxious desperate bleak shocked despair impotent powerless cautious discouraged starting to sound like flesh and blood to me what are they desiring support for peter support for each other Safety, deliverance, rescue, relief, reassurance, peace. What are they choosing? To pray, support one another, to cry out to God, to engage, to hope. To dare to hope. Maybe nothing less, but just to cry out to God. Because in that helpless estate, what else can they do? Now, I remember when my son was about three months old. Judah had an apnea monitor, uh, uh, or none. Of, was it three months, honey? Huh? Five weeks? Man, I was little. Man, Judah came out tiny. He was like he was like this. We used to burp him like this, like two fingers, because he was so fragile. And uh, he he was a lot smaller than Karis by a significant amount. And so he had some development developmental stuff. And he had a hard time breathing. Like, he sounded like, like, like is, is our son okay? And uh, we noticed that he was having a hard time breathing. Kendra woke me up one day and going, I'm really scared. What's going on? I, I, I feel like it's making me really nervous. He has, seems to have a hard time breathing. And so we, we went to the, the hospital, and we plugged him into an apnea monitor. And so here I am. Uh, having to preach the very next Sunday in in two days about Jesus telling us, do not worry. And here I am with my son tied up to an apnea monitor doing nothing but worrying. And I remember a a good, well-intended person in the congregation said, don't worry, Steve, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I remember trying to comfort myself with, bob marley songs bob marley says don't worry about a thing because everything is gonna be all right and, and we like those songs but those songs of just don't worry it's gonna be all right it's short-lived and yet jesus somehow tells us do not worry and here i am doing nothing but worrying and what we need in those moments are not hallmark cards of, you know, platitudes of God won't give you more than you can handle and, and stuff like that. Or think, uh, Bob Marley songs or comfort that's outside the go- the gospel of grace or outside of God. Uh, I mean, the truth is, God does give us more than we can handle. I mean, that's why they're called trials. That's why we cry out help. I remember uh, in Ephesians chapter Ephesians chapter 5 Paul says be careful walk carefully be circumspect because the days are evil be careful how you walk be circumspect of how you walk or how you live because the days are evil and I, I, I was fascinated by that because the days of e are evil doesn't mean like we got like goblins running around everywhere, but days are evil meaning, dude, bad stuff happens. I mean, the second law of thermodynamics, I mean, things go from order to disorder, from good stuff to chaos. I mean, uh, we we get older, we, we the cars break down, we have to pay bills. I, I bought a house, and we're, it's an old house, like 100 plus years, and we're having to to take care of the water issues in the basement because things fall apart. So we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that, people get sick. I mean, just everything around us. I mean, if our joy and happiness, you know, the Apostle Paul says, be careful, be circumspect how you walk because the days are evil. And then he goes on to say, rejoice. Rejoice. Like, what is that about? I mean, how can you do that? How can we do that if we're trying to sing And have joy when everything around us, you know, circumspect, everything around us seems to go to chaos. And, you know, for us, life is tumultuous. If you're a kid here, you don't know what tumultuous means. It means crazy. It means like up and down, left and right. Doesn't make sense. It's disorderly. Things are going great like a roller coaster and things are going bad. Oh, my gosh. It's like life is tumultuous. It can feel like it is just too much. Maybe you're there right now. You feel like too life is just too much for you to handle. You're stretched. You're overwhelmed. You're perplexed. You don't know how life is going to turn out or where the cards are going to, how the how things are going to fall. Now, I remember when I left in town, which was my church in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was a pastor who uh, left seminary. I graduated from Gordon Conwell Seminary up here, and I went down to Atlanta, Georgia to get a pastoral gig opportunity in 2007 ordained in 2009 and went on to bigger and better things right uh, except in 2012 uh, I, I was in a place where my heart was falling apart uh, I, I i was in a place where i could not trust anybody at work uh it was a place where i just wanted to get out of ministry I just wanted out i wanted to get out of there i wanted to uh, it's the the, pressures, the pressure cooker was just too much for me to handle. Help. I went to go see a counselor. And two things stick out to me. One is when I told him uh, that, like, I, I, just need to, I just need to quit. And he said, what's keeping you? I said, I don't have anything else lined up. And he somehow convinced me that God was going to take care of me. And... By the grace of God, I've made that decision right there that when I got home, I was going to tell my wife, we're, we're done, or we're, we're quitting. And, of course, she's going to freak out, and she did. Uh, but I remember telling my counselor, I'm done. And, and, my, <laughs> and, and the next thing I see was that my counselor was he, he, he was, he had tears in his eyes. And the reason why he had tears in his eyes is because I had tears in mine, and I was running around in circles like a little kid. It's going, I can't handle this. And now all of a sudden I'm free. Uh, help. Help. What am I supposed to do? And my counselor, Nate Shaddock, told me this. He said, Steve, I'm going to see you again. I'm going to see you again. Or I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you in this. But I want you to know one thing. Right now, the one thing you lack is Solidarity. Solidarity. I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Well, you're not—you're not solid. You're—you're—you're you're, you're sh- you're shaky. You're—you're uh, you're fragile. You know, like something bad happens and poof, you go down. Something good happens, like okay, I might have hope. But foof, you go down. Yeah, uh, everything you look, everything around us—if things are going horrible, so is your heart. And I was a pastor who found himself realizing, man, I just." can't handle the pressures of life and what good is a pastor who can't handle things in life and yet all I could do was cry out for help needing solidarity and not having it and for many of us we find life is tumultuous it can feel like it's too much I mean uh, for many of us we have what I call daisy theology okay, when, my, when my daughter was about three years old uh, Karis would pick up flowers she must have observed it from somewhere and she would go I love me, I love me, I love me, I love me, I love me. Kind of not not the right point, but like she observed it cool. I love me. And wouldn't it be great if we can live like that? Knowing I love me and everything is good. But for most of us, that's not where we live. Most of us, it's like she loves me, she loves me a lot. She loves me, she loves me not. Or rather, God loves me. God loves me not. God is with me. Where is he? God is for me. Is he against me? Does God hate me? Does God love somebody else before me? Like we, we might trust and believe that God is good to art farks or somebody else over there, but he's not really... Is, does he, has he forgotten me? You know the thing that really bothered me about the whole do not worry sermon that Jesus preached? He would give an illustration. Uh, he said, don't worry. I mean, I mean, consider the birds. I mean, they just, just fly around. They just fly around. And God, and they're the least important. By birds in that day, were the least important of all all sorts of creatures. They're just like, like the little rats of today. Okay, birds, they just fly around, and yet God feeds them. The, the least significant of birds, God feeds. Huh? and consider the lilies of the field. I mean, they just, they just. What do what do, bird, what do flowers do? How do they feed themselves? They just sit there by photosynthesis and the sunlight produces them food and they get water and they absorb and they just they just sit there and God cares for them. And Jesus would say, how much more valuable are you than these? How much more valuable are you than these? And for the longest time, that never really resonated with me. Because I'm going, how do I not know that I'm one of those lilies that gets stepped on or trampled on? How do I not know that I'm you know, just one of those birds that starves, that doesn't get fed, that can't find the crumb? Because birds do die, flowers do die, and the illustration, that metaphor, didn't really seem to comfort me, and I can tell that Jesus intended it to be comforting. And it's because I kept looking at what God hasn't promised. I kept looking at everything around me, and I kept asking, help but I cannot find it. Now, so where do we find help? You know, if if we're in a place where life is tumultuous and and life can feel like it's too much, if we feel like, loves me, God loves me, God is for me, God hates me, God is with me, God is not, he's abandoned me, where do we find help? Now, I I thought of, um, you know, bringing a shrub. Uh, Kids, I don't have an illustration for you because I I was going to bring a shrub, but I couldn't find one. Uh, but, you know, if you think of a shrub, I mean, shrub is tiny. little plant. Yeah, yeah. But shrubs are so fragile. You know, you step on them. Uh, you, you know, an animal comes and eats them. Okay? Think of a shrub. You got the image? Now, when I was out in California, uh, we would, uh, my family would drive north, because we're from Southern California, and we would see those big sequoia trees. And, they're massive. They're huge. I mean, I've got to take my kids one day. you dude, I promise you uh, that if daddy's around, I'm going to show you a sequoia tree. Sequoia trees are massive. They're so big and so large that y- y- there's like a... They actually carved a driveway or, or a passageway so the cars can drive through it. A car, a big car drives through a sequoia tree and it's high. Now, yeah that sequoia tree is strong now you got those two images the object of our faith has got to do with everything because when i see the the passage here uh luke does not focus on on our issues he doesn't just focus on everything around us you know he he focuses on how great our god is so when we get together for community group and we share all this stuff about you know what's all their struggles or all the things that are going wrong, let's not forget to point each other to what we really need, which is the strength and object of our faith—a God like the big sequoia tree, who's got this, who's massive, and which object of faith do we hold on to? Now, notice the brevity of the issues. Okay, in verse two. First of all, yes, Herod's after them. The king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He's after them, all right. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. One verse. That's it. Laconic, terse, pithy, succinct. Very short. That's it. one verse. And then if you fast forward to verse 6, you got this whole thing about Peter's rescue and deliverance. I'm going to read that right now. Verse 6, if you can read with me, in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on his side, it's like, do, wake up. And he woke him, saying, get up quickly, or another translation, make haste. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. It's like if you ever wake up a kid in the middle of the night or uh, if you've ever had to take a morning trip to drive somewhere, you wake them up, you poke them, go, dude, wake up. Karis, Judah, put your clothes on. It's like, like here, brush your teeth. It's like, uh, like he, he's kind of dazed. He's kind of fully awake. Hey, dude, this is what you do. I mean, imagine how much Peter was up. Dress yourself and put, your sandal, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of his own accord, and they went out and went along one street. So they walked one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, And from all that the Jewish people were expecting, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And keep in mind, they're praying for Peter's Peter something. I don't know what they're praying for. You know, if it was me, I'd probably be praying for God. He's a goner, but make his pain as make his death as painless as possible. Or, Or maybe they were praying for his deliverance. Or maybe they were praying for his comfort. I mean, I don't know, but they were praying for Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. <sighs> Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I mean, for Peter, going, it's like, dude, I hear you. Come over here. And he, instead, she goes off in the other direction, going, guys, you won't believe what happened. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it is his angel. I never really got that. I never really—it's it's hard to—it's like it's not really Peter. It can't be him. It's his angel. We're, just, just, just take care of it. It's like, it's like, dude, wouldn't if it was an angel, wouldn't it be as impressive? as like, let's go check it out. But it's like, dude, it's, it's just his angel. But Peter continued knocking, dude. What you. They're coming after me. He's like, I just escaped. Let me in. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They were amazed. Imagine what you would have said if you saw Peter at that moment. Dude, whoa, no way. Oh my gosh. It's Peter. It's real. It's you. Poke him. It's you. It's not a ghost. It's not your angel. It's Peter. Oh my gosh. It must have been insane because the next verse says but motioning to them with his hands to be silent. Dude, shh, quiet. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, he, said he probably gets into the house, and he tells them all this, the story of how he was delivered by the angel. He said, he, tell, he said, tell these things to James. That's not the dude who just died, but that's James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, and to the brothers. Tell these things to James and to the brothers, meaning embolden the church. Then he departed and went to another place. Why? I don't really know. Probably because it's like, I ain't sticking around here. It's Like, they're after me. Um, now, when, <laughs> now, I love um, the next verse. is kind of like one of those novels where it's like, meanwhile, back at the barn. Okay. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries. He examined them. He's like, He's Jack them because if you let a prisoner go and you're the sentry, you're a Roman soldier, you were given the same fate that belonged to the prisoner. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Notice the amount of time that Luke spends on Peter. And then in verse 20 he comes back to Herod. Which, when reading it the first time, I'm going, that is so weird, it's so out of place. Check this out. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On a appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God! and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I mean, I, I was getting together with Steve Pregazer and, and Adam, and, and we were talking about, yeah, yeah this Sunday, we'll just, we'll just have the kids, we'll have the kids in our service, because it, it'll, it'll be fine. And, you know, It's not really a a family-friendly passage. It's more like the Game of Thrones. You have uh, the passage beginning with someone dying. You have the passage ending with someone dying. You have the passage beginning with Herod, ending with Herod. Somebody uh, getting his head chopped off, and in the end, getting eaten by worms. Okay, so so, uh, it is the passage. I didn't choose it, but sorry about that. But here's the cool part. The way the chapter ends is this. In verse 24 it says, But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Even in all this, the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. This is something that the author of Acts repeats again and again and again. Because he's trying to, uh, to illustrate that the kingdom of God, the word of God, the message of God, the plan of God is moving forward from Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth. Acts Acts 2.41 so those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts four four. But many of those who had heard the Word believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. Acts 5.14 And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts six seven. And the Word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What the author of Acts is trying to show us, what God is trying to show us today is that nothing can stand against you. God tells us, he says, "I, I will always let you know how the story ends. I will never leave you questioning how things finish. God's plan always includes our good and can never be thrown off course. God's plan always includes our good and can never be thrown off course. Now, the passage here is clear. clearly in my mind making a couple juxtapositions. Now, juxtapose means you know put side to side. Okay. So, he's making he's putting side to side something for you to see. Something he's making a comparison. The first juxtaposition, first comparison is that of Herod and Peter. Herod and Peter. Uh, Now, uh, it's interesting, the passage is, um, it, it, it takes place during Passover. And that is not by accident that Luke includes that detail because the many words, many phrases, many words go back to, he's echoing back to the Exodus. He's echoing back to the Exodus. Where they had a Passover meal. And he, he uses the word patasso. Patasso. Patasso is the word for strike. Okay? It means to cut, kill, slay, uh, to, you know, like um, when John's head was beheaded, he was patassoed. Okay? When, when Peter cut off the Malchus, the, the soldier's ear, he was patassoed. So it's a strong word. Interestingly enough, uh, it says here in describing Peter, the angel of the Lord patassoed him. He hit him on the side. He patassoed him. He struck him on the side. Okay? And that's a very strong word to describe just, dude, wake up. But that's the word he uses. He uses the same word patasso, strike, to describe Herod. Uh, he says of Herod, uh, because he gave God not the glory, but himself, uh, he's going eaten by worms, so he, he's going to, God the angel of the Lord patassoed him. So you got the angel of the Lord doing a patasso or a striking of Peter, and a patasso is striking of Herod. And you have, it's during the Passover, uh, when Peter is delivered by the angel, the, uh, the word used, when the angel's first command is, make haste. That's, again, echoing back to the Exodus when God tells the people, leave, make haste, get out of here quickly. Now, With that set up, I want you to notice this. Exodus 12, 21, 23. Now there's a distinction a differentiation where God strikes one to deliver Peter and strikes one to to, uh, punish Herod. Going back to Exodus 12, 21, 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with, door, well, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike, to Potasso the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer, this destroyer to enter your house to strike or to potasso you. That, that, that's striking to me, no pun intended. Uh, that God clearly differentiates his people from not his people. That begs the question with the second juxtaposition. Peter and James. Where are you going? Well, what about James? I mean, he wasn't delivered. I mean, did the people of God fail to pray for him? Uh, Did they just forget, leave him out? Whoops. Uh, And I think that the prosperity gospel wants you to believe that. That it's up to you and anything that doesn't happen is a failure on your part. Because the more, if you claim it, if you say it in a loud way, if you say it in a meaningful way, if you're more earnest, if you're more eager, uh, if you're more intense, more bold, do whatever it takes to get God's attention ah! you know I mean that the God if you claim it God will give it and if you don't do it it's because you didn't pray hard enough but you know that's really more the God of the Baal or the Baal I mean where they just try to get God's attention and, uh, and um, Elijah just makes fun of them for like dude I mean maybe you're, you're God went out to lunch or he went to go to the restroom uh, but that's not, that's not what we see here. I mean, you see Peter, he was uh, being prayed for. And when he finally shows up, those disciples are surprised. They go, and it can't be Peter. God couldn't have answered our prayers. It can't be the strength of our faith. And so the people who are dead, I mean, these heavyweights of the faith, these spiritual leaders, Dead at such an early age, dead in their prime, with so much potential, and one of them is delivered and the other isn't. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think this, this passage shows us that God is not a formula. He is sovereign, and with His good purposes, He will do everything to move His plan forward. God's plan always includes our good and can never be thrown off. Let me read you the Heidelberg Catechism. If you've Memorize this. Great, wonderful. I hope it's an encouragement to you. But the very first question is, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, says this, God's end in all things is His own glory, that He should be manifested, known, admired, adored. This statement is true, but it is, it is incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on men, God has voluntarily bound up his own final happiness with theirs. It is not for nothing that the Bible habitually speaks of God as the loving father and husband of his people. It follows from the very nature of these relationships that God's happiness will not be complete till all his beloved ones are finally out of trouble till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. You know, that's comforting to me. Because God's plan for the overarching plan that he's got has me on the map. His plan always includes our good and can never be thrown off course. Now, Tim Keller, uh, he gives this illustration about um, how he started the church in New York. Tim Keller is, I guess, a heavyweight of our denomination uh, in the PCA. And he was sharing about why he planted in New York. And I want to share that with you to illustrate this point. He says this. Do you know, to his congregation, he says in New York. Do you know why we're here tonight? I was thinking of this example this week. And you'll see why in a minute. There are a lot of reasons. All kinds of people have, so, have done so much to make this ministry and this church happen. But we could certainly say if Kathy, his wife, and, not, and I had not come to New York 18 years ago or so to start the church, none of this would be here. Well, why? What's the reason we came to New York to start the church? Because we joined a Presbyterian denomination that not only encouraged but gave us the freedom and set a priority for church planting. Well, why were there a member of that Presbyterian denomination? Why were we a member of that Presbyterian denomination? Because my last semester in seminary, I took two courses with a professor who convinced me I was theologically a Presbyterian, and that's the reason I went to the denomination. I went into the the denomination. That's the reason I planted the church. But why did I take those two courses? Because at the very, very last minute, this man was able to come and teach those courses in spite of the fact there was a bureaucratic snag at the top that was keeping him from getting his visa. He was British. The only reason he came and taught those courses, the only reason it changed my theological views... The only reason I joined the Presbyterian denomination, the only reason I planted a church, the only reason we're here tonight is that bureaucratic snag was suddenly opened up at the last minute and he was able to get there in time to teach me, to teach me those courses. Well, well, what opened up the snag? What happened? The answer in one morning, uh, the dean was praying and saying, I don't know how we're going to get this guy here in time to teach these courses this semester. His prayer partner was a young man who was a student of my seminary at the time and he also happened to be one of the sons of the sitting president of the United States at the time who was Gerald Ford. When he asked the dean what he was praying about and the dean told him, he says, well, you know, I have a name you could talk to that might get you through the bureaucratic snag and it did, it worked. So why did he have the power to get rid of that snag so that man could come so I could have that course so I could change my views so I could join the Presbyterian Church, so I could come and plant this church, so we could be here tonight. Only because Nixon resigned. Gerald Ford never, ever, ever would have been president unless Nixon resigned. But why did Nixon have to resign? Because of the Watergate scandal. Why did the Watergate scandal happen? Because the people who were bugging the Democratic Party offices, the night they bugged it, they left the door open. And because a night watchman noticed a door was unlatched, he went in and it was all discovered. If that door had just been closed two more inches, we wouldn't be here tonight. Everything would have been changed. I have a question. Do you think that happened by accident that the guy kept the door open instead of closing it? All he had to do was pull it or turn around and say, is that door closed? He didn't. Do you think that happened by accident? Of course, if Ray Bradbury is right, and he's right, if that didn't happen by accident, nothing happens by accident. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even Watergate happened for you. God's plan always includes our good and can never be thrown off course. I'll end with this. When I left uh, Atlanta, uh, the church, I resigned. I resigned. I had no job lined up, didn't know where I was going. And, I mean, I didn't have a job. And I had kids that weren't even in one yet. And I'm begging, asking God help. What am I to do? And uh, eventually I worked at Starbucks for a couple months to, to get insurance. Uh, and eventually was able to find a job, uh, luckily, uh, through my church connections, uh, to uh, Ron Washburn, the vice president um, I actually confirmed this kid in my congregation, he was a part of the youth group and he got me this job as a nurse recruiter and as a nurse recruiter in Atlanta, Georgia I was beginning with a $30,000 base uh, which could not pay for anything I mean, and here I am trying to figure this life out uh, trying to make commissions in each I mean it took a, it was a long runway before I made anything and Every single prayer, every single placement was accompanied with a prayer. Every single conversation with a nurse was like, God, please, please, please let this be the one. God, please feed my kids. Please feed my family. I don't know where I'm going to be. I thought I was going to be in church in in another month. Uh, And and instead, I I was a nurse recruiter for years and and still am today. And and I was praying, God, please feed my kids. And it was a long, long runaway, like zero success uh, to get anywhere. And, you know, I I thought about that, like, I I call that one of my desert experiences with Kendra. That was really tough times. It took a long while for us to get back into ministry. Uh, Logan and I, uh, actually, Kendra and I met Melissa and Logan at the airport, uh, of all places, Uh, and we remembered them from seminary, and we said, what are you up to? Oh, cool. Oh, what are you up to? Well, I'm kind of in between call, and I'm going through church planning assessment, yada, yada. This was in 2013, Uh, and... Um, you know Logan gives me a business card and goes Let, let's stay in touch with her. we have, always have opportunities here in Boston and so I did and we visited Boston uh, years later and we, we were like "Okay, this is what we're looking for we're looking for something that's post-Christian modern or post-modern urban eth- uh, multi-ethnic a uh, place with uh, um, you know, w- mentorship a place where we can you know, be involved in church planting whatever that looks like Uh, but I'll tell you that 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 was years I mean we left in 2013 Uh, we came back just a couple years ago uh, and all my plans were derailed but in the midst of that every single placement uh, God was showing and teaching me who is it Steve that puts clothes on your kids backs Like, like if God gave me immediate success I wouldn't have learned that I mean, God is not primarily interested in, in me being a success or, or me just uh, being able to live life and make life work without Him. God is primarily interested in working all things for good that is making me more like Christ, uh, making uh, me af- more effective to do His work in ministry, and He tells us how the story ends. And there's comfort in that. I pray it will comfort you. And... Um, I'll ask one last question is this. How can we know that in the midst of our cries for help that we are being heard? How can we know in the midst of our struggles or concerns or not knowing how it's going to play out, not knowing where my next paycheck is going to come from, not knowing if the health of my kids is going to get better, not knowing where we're going to get insurance, not knowing where our church is going to look like in a week, two weeks, or three weeks, or or a year, or, or six months, or whatever? How do we know where we're going to be? Uh, I mean, if if maybe you're here going, where am I going to be? Why am I even here in Boston? I mean, this is supposed to be a stopgap. I mean, uh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. How do we know that God is for us, is with us, that we don't have to worry, that God is with us today? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, er, in the same way he took the cup, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Little flock, how much more valuable are you than these? If you are here today, I want to invite you, uh, if you have thrown yourself with him, and it's only because he has thrown himself with you, if you have called him, if you have reached out to Jesus, it's because he first reached out to you. And if you're here and you did not know Jesus, I want to ask that you, the, for your courage and the faith to make that next step today. And the Bible tells us, if you do, and if you have done so, it's only because Jesus granted the faith for you to do so. And that is the gift the bewildering gift that we (laughs) have nothing to boast about. But these elements, this bread and this cup, they point to the life that Jesus lived, the life that satisfied the righteous requirements of God. These elements here in my hand today, they point us to the death that Jesus died, the sin that he had to pay for, all our sins, Past, present, and future. All of it. Jesus himself was struck down. He was potassoed so that we would be free. That we would know, ultimately, that we are loved. That we cannot be any more loved, cannot be any more esteemed, cannot be any more embraced than right now. And if you're here today, maybe you've you've really blown it this week, or even this morning, and uh, maybe you yelled at your kids this morning. I want you to, by faith... Reach into the gospel and know you are forgiven today. If Patrick can come on up, and uh, I want to say the Lord's table together. Uh, Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, was sanctified for us at Calvary. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with Thanksgiving.